Now, I feel like I've done a little bit, I have to admit, of a bait and switch. I'm not, I'm not even a little bit sad about it. Here's, here's, here's what we said last week, um, that we were going to use the month of January in a series called Rest in Jesus, and the idea being that as January is going a bit slower, we would, um, we would, we would roll with it, we'd, we'd lean into the season and use the period of January to do some spiritual recovery, just some, some spiritual rejuvenation, getting ourselves ready to live a life of service to our God and faith uh, to our God. Um, we're going to put fuel back in the tank, and that is absolutely what we're going to be doing um, today, but we're going to be coming at it from another, another angle. What kind of has happened is that last week I softened you up, and we looked at what it means to find rest in God's might as those who are included in grace. It's a very encouraging message, a very, a very immediately relevant message, I think. Um, and you sat there thinking, listening to that, this is, this is wonderful, this is really nice. I could do this all the time. I could listen to one of these sermons every day of the week. And now that you've let your guard down, bam, we're coming in from the other side with the, the right hook of love. Uh, and we are looking at a passage which I would describe as a warning from God. Uh, you will spend a chunk of today's sermon asking yourself this question, what on earth has this got to do with resting in Jesus? <laughs> Uh, it will make sense later, I promise, uh, but we've got to do some groundwork before we get there. Uh, so before we get to God's warning for us today, here is, here is the, the things we need in our mind for it all to make sense. God in his gracious might, that's what we heard about last week, is calling us in. He's calling us closer He's calling us toward him. He's calling us to live face to face with him. That is wonderful good news. The other side of that coin is that it is very urgent that we accept his grace and that we walk in it immediately. The existence of grace, the joy of grace, does not mean that we should take God's grace for granted. Do you understand what I'm saying? It is not safe to oppose God's grace in your life that puts you in danger. And so it is very important that we live lives which are marked by a continual listening to God over the long haul of life and that we start doing so immediately. Uh, this warning from God comes to us from Hebrews chapter 3. Uh, and before we get to read our passage, why don't I give you a quick bit of explanation about what the book of Hebrews is about. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament is an extended demonstration of how Jesus and the New Covenant are both fulfillment, uh, the, the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament, but more so, the Jesus and the New Covenant are an improvement an upgrade over the conditions of the old covenant. It's the sort of stuff that would sound like blasphemy were it not in the Bible. It, has, it seems to have been written to encourage a certain kind of person. A thing was happening in the context of the early church. Imagine this person. A Hebrew person would come to believe in Jesus and as a result of their new faith, would be kicked out of the synagogue that they had been raised in. They were no longer welcome. Which meant for them the loss 
of all of their old systems of support and community. This, this story happened on repeat across the first century. There were some among that number of new believers who found the cost of discipleship to be too high a cost to pay and as a result would turn back, return to their old way of life, turn away from Jesus and return to Judaism. There were some who would try and have it both ways. To, to claim Jesus, but also to live lives as Jews, a la the book of Galatians. That's a thing that happens. This is, this is where the warning becomes relevant. People who claim to be Christians can get to a place in life where they begin to think the cost is too high for following this Jesus character. I had it better before. And they turn back. It can be those who were raised among God's people, choosing instead to return to a external-only version of the faith. And it can be those who are first-generation believers, those who have suffered loss in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. There is a cost to following Jesus. The cost is real. Jesus tells us, take up your cross and follow me because he is the world's worst salesperson. There will be days, as Christians, where we look over our shoulder and we see people prospering specifically because they are not living God's way. That's going to happen. While we are busy crucifying self, they are living for self. And in the short term, that's lovely. At times, we will be persecuted for our faith. And other people who do not share our faith will find it much easier to fit in and avoid all that. We don't pursue certain things, certain pleasures, certain opportunities, because we believe them to be sin or outside of God's will for us. And we watch as, as, as other people plunge straight into those things that we are withholding from ourselves. We watch as they revel in them and boast in them and claim them to be the most wonderful thing in life. Psalm 19 tells us that the commands of God are perfect and comes to the conclusion in verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned and in keeping them there is great reward. That is true in the ultimate sense. In the long run, God will be proved to be correct. His promises will prove to be true. His people will receive the greater blessing. But are there not days when in our nearsightedness, it does not appear to be true? That the great reward seems to be what we have lost in order to gain Christ. There will come moments for each and every one of us when we will catch ourselves thinking, I was better off with my old life. I was better off when I was Lord. Things were better. They were easier. They were more secure. And so some give up. Turn back. And it is an enormous grief any time this happens. 
to trade in Jesus for some other thing. No matter how comfortable that thing is, or safe looking, or pleasant, is a downgrade. It is to lose the better thing, to gain a worse thing. It is not trading up. We used to play this ridiculous game when I was in youth ministry, where we would give all the kids something crummy, like a ballpoint pen or a marble, and then send them out into the streets door knocking, because apparently back then stranger danger wasn't a thing. <laughs> and the whole goal of the game was to trade up. This is what we call it, trading up. You would knock on a stranger's house with your marble and say, look, I'm from the youth group down the road. We have a marble. Can you exchange this for something better than a marble? And we would leave, let this go for two hours at the night and the, the kids would come back to church at the end of the night showing us how far up they had traded in a night. There was the eternal, I don't know if it's true or not, there was the eternal rumor of one youth group that did this where a bunch of kids rocked up pushing a car down the street that didn't quite work that they managed to get to in the space of the night. That's trading up. It's better than a marble. To exchange Jesus, however, for worldly comfort is not trading up. It is to lose the most important thing in order to gain a less important thing. This book, Hebrews, is written to people who are in the process of turning back from grace and turning to works because that feels safer feels more secure, it feels more manageable. Grace is good, but I need my claim to Jewish law, or else I'm lost. I need the respect of people, or else I'm lost. I need that community that I've lost, or else it's not going to work. And so God, you can have anything, but you can't, you can't have that. You can't have that. This book is written to that person to try and convince them that's downgrade. Not only is it downgrade, it's a dangerous one. You put yourself in peril. Hebrews 3 begins with the claim that Jesus is better than Moses. Hebrews 3.3 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. This is a book called Hebrews written to Jews. That's offensive. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honour than the house itself. When you look at a house that is impressively built, it's not, it's not like, I like sandstone, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm a red-blooded man. An impressively built house is, is a good thing. But how much more impressive is the builder of the house? Who designed it, who conceived it, who constructed it. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honour than the house itself. It's downgrade to turn from, Mo from Jesus back to Moses. And then we get to our warning, our conclusion. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, you should pick up at that, your God is speaking. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. 
where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. It's a sober warning. It's an ever relevant one. It's worth our attention today. There are layers of Old Testament meaning happening in this passage. It's unsurprising we're reading Hebrews. The whole book is like that. The first place we notice that is that the opening line repeated at the end of our passage is a quote from Psalm 95. And much of this passage is kind of like a mini-sermon, an exposition of that psalm. Interesting side note, the author here, speaking from Psalm 95 in the Old Testament, says... The Holy Spirit says this, which is one of those places in the Bible where the biblical authors claim the divine inspiration of the whole of Scripture. The Holy Spirit inspired these words so that it can be said, He said them, past tense, and yet also He is here right now proclaiming this message to us So that we can say, today, the Holy Spirit says. I can know with confidence as I read these words to you, the Holy Spirit is speaking, present tense, to you. And what does he have to say? Our God, the Holy Spirit. He says, if you hear my voice today, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. The ESV Study Bible had a great description of what it means to harden your heart. This is what they had to say. To harden the heart is to make it dull and unresponsive to God, and thus to strengthen it in disbelief. Isn't that good? To harden the heart is to make it dull and unresponsive to God, and thus strengthen it in disbelief. Brothers and sisters, when when a person leaves the faith, it is not usually a thing which happens overnight. There are not many people who woke up one morning a Christian and woke up the next morning in complete disbelief. That's not how things tend to happen. No, usually that destination is arrived at through a long series of compromises. It starts from a failure 
to follow through on what we know to be God's will for us in a smaller thing. A piece which had once been laid at his feet is taken back from him. A command is disobeyed, an idol is reached for, and then when God the Holy Spirit confronts us on that new sin found in our lives and brings conviction to us, making us aware that this is outside of his will for us, we arrive at a moment of decision and we say no to him. We, we, we clutch at, we cling to the thing which now holds God's rightful place in our life and we push him away even if only just a little. No, God. I need this. You have to give me this. You can't take this away. How dare you? And that happens again and again and again, as long as we cling to the idol. And each time we make that decision, it moves us further away from him, further away from him. And each time we do that, our heart grows dull and unresponsive to God. It grows hard toward him. And so today, if you hear his voice, don't do that. It's dangerous. In order to bring the full weight of realization to us of just how dangerous the hardened heart can be, this psalm brings our attention to the catastrophic events which are recorded in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14. Numbers tells us about the occasion when the Israelites, who had followed Moses out from Egypt after the plagues, the Israelites, who had followed the pillar of smoke and flame in the wilderness. The Israelites, who ate food each day that literally fell out of the sky and wandered into their camp every night on its own two legs. The Israelites, who had been there to see the Mount of Sinai as the cloud descended and the Lord met with Moses and heard the thunder. Those Israelites openly rebelled against God and dug in their heels and said, No, I don't care what you have to say to me, God. I'm not doing it. They had been led out of Egypt with the promise that God was taking them to the land, the land promised to their forefather, Abraham. But there was... <laughs> No point in that journey where the Israelites were happy with the cost of following God's call. At every step of the journey, there had been, one of my favorite words, grumbling, onomatopoeia, a word which sounds like what it means. Say silently to yourself out loud the word grumble, 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 and that is what grumbling sounds like, is it not? When Pharaoh refused to let the people go, 
rather increased their burden and forced them to build bricks without straw. People grumbled. When God finally led them out and Pharaoh finally relented, but then pursued them with his army, the people grumbled. When the food that fell from the sky wouldn't last until tomorrow, the people grumbled. At the foot of Sinai, where God was meeting with Moses and giving the law, when that took too long, the people grumbled. All of that grumbling, their hearts were hardening against their God. Until now, the end goal of the whole journey is in sight. This is like we've made it through the 13-hour slog of watching the three Lord of the Rings films. Frodo finally gets to Mount Doom and just thinks, I don't like volcanoes. I'm going home. They are standing at the border of the land. The whole nation. This day is meant to be the fulfillment of a long-standing promise of God. But before they enter the land, they send in scouts who come back with a report. Yes, it's a blessed land. There is amazing produce. Giant grapes, but also giants. It's a dangerous place. The people there are mighty. We are afraid and don't think that we could possibly survive. We shouldn't go in. The cost seems very high. From a human point of view, that's legitimate. That would have been entirely terrifying. This is a point of decision for the people. The Holy Spirit is speaking. He's calling them in to his promises. Enter. It's yours. It's my gift to you. God is calling us in this direction. But that seems really hard. Will they obey? Will they soften their hearts? Will they walk into the promise? Or in unbelief. Because it is unbelief. They've heard that it's God's promise. They know that's certain. They doubt that God is true. That's the problem. In unbelief will they harden their hearts. Numbers 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, by the way, the answer to all those questions is no, that's not true. They said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. 
a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread to us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said, to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. I just would love to have been a fly on the wall to see that. They picked up the rocks ready to kill Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb. The hand goes up. The, the literal, visible appearance of God shows itself in the temple. <laughs> The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Moses, I'm done with the Israelites. You're okay. Let's start again with the new nation. So the story continues. Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel, and God softens the judgment but doesn't remove it. None of the adults standing there, except for Caleb and Joshua, may enter the promised land. Not a one. Their children will be the ones to inherit the promise of God. And so God is going to lead this people. He's been leading them for a while now with the cloud by day and the fire by night. He's going to lead them back into the desert that they have just walked out of. And he's going to lead them in circles for 40 years until that entire generation has perished. And when the next generation is mature, they will return to this same point and again need to make the decision. Will we trust God and enter or not? But for this first generation, the ones who saw all those things, to these Red Sea pedestrians, they have missed out. No more second chances. They have pushed God too far, so that, as the psalmist says, God swore in his anger, they will never enter my rest. They took grace for granted. They pushed it too far. And broke it. A moment of decision. The Lord is calling. Will we listen to him and walk in faith? Or will we harden our hearts? Life is a series of these moments. Some of them are more important than others. But it is always of the utmost importance that we do not take grace for granted, that we do not presume upon the grace of God. Yes, that grace exists. Yes, it covers a multitude of sins, but there is a difference between belief and unbelief. And eventually there comes a point where God says that is, that is unbelief. As a result... Of hardening their hearts, God swore, these people will never enter my rest. 
Now we've come to rest in his rules. That word rest here has layers of meaning. Layers of meaning. It's a rich word. In the Exodus, God's rest here means entry into the promised land. It is an immediate, earthly promise of rest. Come into the security and the providence of God. The place of God. Rest. The word has a larger meaning as well, doesn't it? How could you use that word in speaking to a Hebrew audience without them remembering the words of Genesis? In creation, where God on the seventh day rested. It's my rest there to enter into. God's own rest creates the Sabbath rhythm, one day in seven, but also has a larger eschatological meaning, a larger eternal meaning. Salvation. Resting from your labors. Nothing left to prove. At peace with God, he, your father, and you, his child. Enjoying God's presence in God's place forever. Rest. Hebrews is in the New Testament. Where that theme of rest is taken up and applied to what we as Christians have in Christ. There is a Sabbath rest which remains for us who are in Christ. And it is not the mere rest of one day in seven. It is the ontological rest. Rest from the level of your being up. Of being a person who has been, in the perfect sense, reconciled to God your Creator. There are no works left for you to gain His love. There is no doubt of your security in him. Your eternal destination is assured. Rest. And the difference between a person who has that rest in the finished work of Jesus and a person who has no right to claim it is the difference between belief and unbelief. Sincere faith or a pretense or a denial. A hard heart, this is the warning in Hebrews, a hard heart can cause you to miss out on Jesus. That's the point of all of this. Hebrews 3 verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If you get halfway and turn back, you were not his. God is calling you into obedience to him. The obedience of faith. And if you do the thing, if you say no to him, if you clench down your fist on the idol and say, no, you can't have this. If you do what my kids' Bible says and go and buy a ticket to not Nineveh. If you harden your heart, you will lose your rest. You will lose your access to his rest now. That's the best thing that can happen. 
you will lose in the present sense something of your access to the security that comes through Christ something of your access to his present promises of blessing And if you harden your heart more significantly, you imperil your standing in his eternal rest. God's sovereignty does not undermine this. They are friends. This is how it plays out. Do not take grace for granted. If you hear him today, if he is calling you today, listen today. There are two responses to this. The first is for me, and the second is for us. For me, the response is so clear. Do not harden your hearts. As in the day of rebellion, the day of testing and the wilderness. Don't do it. Is God calling you today? Is the Holy Spirit speaking? Are you tired? Weary? Heavy burdened? It can have lots of causes. Could be that you just got a bad night's sleep. But this is an important possibility to consider. It can be because you are saying no to your God and you've been hardening your heart towards him. And you are in the spiral away from him or flirting with him. Or perhaps you still haven't said yes to him even for the first time. And today the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Come in! Enter my rest! It's for you. What has Christ not done on our behalf? Come in and know safety and security and rest for your souls. Come in. Know what it is to escape from sin and its curse. And there is something in you that is saying, No, I would. This much you can have, but no more. Do not harden your heart. Do not. Do not presume upon grace, but accept his gracious invitation. Today. And for us, verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We Christians, are, we're a weird bunch. We do not fit in. How many times have I heard someone complain to me? That person said a mean thing to me. What did they say to you? They said this thing that I was doing was sin. It was very judgmental of them. But the thing that you were doing was sin. So it wasn't judgmental. They're exhorting you 
as Lawrence is called today. They're trying to rescue him. And playing the I'm offended card might work with lots of kinds of people, but it shouldn't work with Christians. You can, you can be a jerk. It's possible for Christians to be a jerk. But far more frequently, we get offended by people being correct when we are wrong because it's a convenient excuse to not listen. I know I'm like that. It's not what you said, it's how you said it. Those words are they're just gas, they mean nothing. I don't want myself to have a hard heart towards my God. And if you, my brothers and sisters, see in me an error that is leading me away from his grace, please do me the kindness of letting me know that you see it. I won't respond well. <laughs> you might save myself. Let's pray. source of truth and security and purpose, to go through life acting and maybe even believing that I know better than you. Lord, but your promises are good, that's not the problem. When I am in my right mind, Lord, I know that you know better than me. I know that Psalm 19 is true. I know that by your commands, by your word, is your servant warned, and that in keeping your commands is great all that. I know that I can't do that without grace. That the more I have of Jesus, the more like you I become.
Ooh, like rumbling. Lord, you know like rumbling. So I thank you for days like today. That this book of Hebrews isn't judgmental, it's gracious. Thank you for your warning. Would I listen? Lord, as we've as we've made our way through these things today, there's, there's some of us here today where they know. They have a very specific thing come to mind that they have been holding away from you or that has been keeping them away from you. They know in detail what it is, though it's hard to admit because it's frightening. We pray. We pray for them that even now would your voice be louder than the voice of unbelief? Would your calling speak them to life? Would you move in your rescuing power to liberate us from our idols and help us to lay them down? Be they things or opportunities or griefs or bitterness Father, now we willingly lay these at your feet and say, these things worry us. They frighten us. We love them. They're not God. You are God. Be my God. You are your God. Soften our hearts as we pray. Bend our necks. Fill us with love and meet us in our need and our weakness and in our need. This we pray in Jesus' name.